Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So what... Can I go first with what's astonishing me? Absolutely. Excellent, because I I wasn't really thinking about what I wanted to say, but I'll just throw this out (laughs) here. So we we really did take a walk together. Soon we're going to start running together again, but we're just walking right now. Yeah, right. And we just... Got back from taking a walk, and I'm astonished. And it's Thursday, not Tuesday. It's Thursday in the afternoon. It is H-O-T hot, although we were drinking hot coffee because some things <laughs> the, are non-negotiable. The only fools walking outside drinking hot coffee. And there is a in wasp July. on the inside of this building right now. Anyway, what I'm astonished by is that while we were walking, Yolando <laughs> Hinton got mugged by a hummingbird. A hummingbird. <laughs> a hummingbird just flew out of and nowhere. And in the throat. And like... That's and it was mean. It was it was terrifying and it was mean and that's it. Like I've been sick this week. I'm tired. The astonishment is supposed to be about things that make give you joy. This did not give me joy, <laughs> but I did. What say, is going on right now? I was now. walking away. That I was so glad that happened to you and not me. Um, anyway, it's rough out there in nature and um, yeah. I'm. I, that's what I'm astonished about. Now you, you can take. I don't us even to, know what to do with that. I'm just, I'm just saying it was very. It was scary. I mean, <laughs> that hummingbird hit me right in the throat. I mean, this is why everyone should stay inside all the time, <laughs> because nature is vicious, and we already had to walk past these. This is dumb. No one cares about this. You have something truly astonishing and inspiring to say, and we're going to be so distracted because there's a huge wasp right by us, About and we're just going to have us. to watch it the whole time, because I'm I'm afraid, <laughs> I'm really afraid, because obviously, obviously, I, I've i just set up some bad karma for myself, not that I believe in karma, but um, anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> Here's what I, I'm astonished what by astonished this week. By? Um, so, you know, we've partnered with this uh, group called Innovative Learning. Uh, we are uh, doing a summer camp right now with them. They are an education um, uh, group. They're seeking to help kids in our community, uh, one, um, recover uh, in terms of their learning uh, during the pandemic, but also just to nurture a generation of children in our neighborhood. So we've partnered with them during the pandemic to provide a safe place with Wi-Fi to do their online learning, but also uh, now we are in the middle of a summer camp, and in a matter of weeks, we're going to begin a daily preschool with them, and the vision is to ultimately um, move that into a full-blown school. That's the vision. Um, This group also contains wonderful Christian people who are mature and um, looking for a place to um, serve. And so last week, we celebrated this partnership with this group called Innovative Learning in Worship, and they provided all of the music and all of the singing, and it was phenomenal. It's probably the best worship experience I've had in almost a decade. I mean, it was really good. And it's not about style, 
It's not about song selection. It's not about tempo. It was really this sense of collectively we invited the Holy Spirit uh, into that time of worship. And um, the Holy Spirit was just faithful to uh, be present and move. And, and I say that not wanting people to hear that the Holy Spirit isn't present at other times when we worship, but there was just a special anointing on that service on Sunday. Well, after worship, one of the oldest members of our congregation, Eva, she's in her 90s, she pulled me um, very close to her and she whispered in my ear, I've been praying that God would not let me die before I saw a day like today. Oh, wow. And I cannot tell you how much that blessed and encouraged and moved and touched me. I mean, just um, number one, that such a precious, dear saint that, you know, as a pastor, you have uh, saints in the church that love you not because you're their pastor. They love you as a human being, and they receive your ministry. She's one of those people. Um, I was so moved and so touched, one, because she's been praying, but it's, it's, the, it's the heart behind it, right? It's, and, and, and someone of that generation when others are saying, you know, the music's too loud or too fast or it's not what I'm used to, her heart is, God, please bring us into a new day. And I'm just so grateful and humbled by it. Yeah, I when we um, went through our most intense period of transformation here at the Grove, I really um, was interesting to me that some of the most um, just matter-of-fact unapologetically supportive folks were folks in their 90s and Mm. we had a couple at that time and I think because they were at a stage where they just really understood that they were standing on the threshold of of life to life right Mm -hmm. and kind of you know in the um from the perspective of eternity things like my preference matters very little um and and you're really thinking about wanting the church to be a vehicle of life and salvation and and so really focusing not on control because i think by the time you get to your 90s you understand that if you're trying to control everything every day is going to be a loss yes um so there's just you know and i don't mean to you know you don't no one spontaneously becomes wise in their 90s so that that's a hard fought um place of wisdom and maturity that I hope to get to. But I do think, yeah, if, if you are at that stage and you're still engaged in communities, that that's a choice of will. And a, a lot of times you just, you see things differently in terms of what, what really matters and what, what doesn't. So, um, cause I remember there's a, um, a man in our congregation who recently died, Richard Wright, who was 105. And when we were going through um, our transformation, what, 10 years ago. And it just, you know, there was obviously just a lot of pain and a lot of energy and a lot of confusion and all, all everyone's feelings are valid. So I'm not invalidating that a lot of loss, but for him, he just said, 
you know, the church is supposed to help people find Jesus. So if we need to change so that people can find Jesus, then I'm for it. And I, you know, he'd seen so many changes already that I, you know, it just wasn't um, as shocking to him as it might have been for folks who, you know, there are some folks who were in sort of the generation under him where, you know, their whole lives, church had kind of been one thing. And so um, changing that was difficult. So that's really, really beautiful. And I, just from knowing her indirectly through you, I'm, I'm, boy, I, I want lots more years on this earth with Eva Edwards, but that yeah. she's been, I think the role, I mean, and it's so biblical, right? That so many of the stories of the fathers and mothers of our faith are people who were moved um, to, to follow God in radical ways were in their very, very later years and I know, you know, there's lots of um, discussion about age, especially in Genesis and what those numbers represented. But I do think there's um, there's probably something really and a really important countercultural message that in our culture we tend to think that anybody who's going to do anything better have it done by 30. And after that, mm. you know, if you haven't gotten to the top by 30, you're a washout. And I think the witness of Scripture is that God chooses people at all ages and stages in life, and that whereas the culture at large will discard people when they're older, and the church, when you are a person of faith who wants to keep nurturing the church and mature, so it's not about control or ownership, but when you really want to pour into people, there's just, um, people are so hungry for their generational elders to bear witness to them about how to walk with God in in the valleys and peaks of life and you know to people need that and as leaders we know that what we highlight what we emphasize gets magnified yep. in the community in the congregation and uh, sometimes we're tempted to focus on the criticism right mm-hmm. I am going to be quoting Eva Edwards every chance I get because if if that heart gets mm-hmm. infused in the congregation, if that spirit gets infused in the congregation, I've been praying that God would not let me die before I saw worship like this. I mean, that's that's so not only beautiful, it's just powerful. Well, and you said a minute ago, as leaders, we know that what we pay attention to gets magnified. I mean, I know that now. I didn't know that <clears throat> 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I think that's... Um, I, and when when our consultant friends Bill and Bob said that, I was just like, Psh, whatever, I don't believe that. And I have discovered experientially that that's very true. Um, so when you have a, a moment like that to want to lift it up and celebrate it, and and just honor it, that really matters because um, and you know this natural sense is that people who maybe are are um, in conflict or, you know, we, we care for people who are opposing or who have conflict. It's not to say that people whose voices are dissenting, that their voices don't matter. I mean, they do. Um, but also it's really important that as a leader, if you have a clear vision for where the congregation is going, that you just, you pay a lot of attention to the people who the Lord has placed around you, who support that vision and you invite others along, but you, sometimes you just can't wait till everybody's on the train you got to just 
invite everyone well, along. And I had a meeting with elders uh, this past Monday, and after we prayed, I started with that that quote from Miss Eva, and you could just feel um, a spirit in the room of, yeah, this is a God thing. Well, and I think what's hard, especially around the leadership table sometimes in Presbyterian Church, in the Presbyterian world where we serve, uh, we're watching this wasp, it's really distracting. Um, there are leaders, there can be a culture of leaders getting really hyper-focused and burdened down with the logistics and the administrative challenges of, like, quote, running the organization. And it can be easy for people to get around session tables and in meeting spaces where all you're talking about are the problems and all you're talking about are the conflicts and all you're talking about are the challenges and just sort of the logistical, technical stuff takes up all the air in the room. And and I just see that, I mean, across, uh, across the board. And so it's really important for us as pastors to keep drawing people back to the reality of, hey, this is spiritual work. Mm -hmm. And if what we're doing, if God's not doing it with us, then we're idiots. And if God is doing it with us, then we can approach our challenges in very different ways. And we can spend the majority of our time remembering um, what, you know, who God is and what God is calling us to do. And it's one reason why we begin this podcast with what's astonishing us, because it's so energizing to just keep in your heart and mind a sense of awe. Right. And of what, what are God the signs? Mm-hmm. What are the signs of God being for us and not against us? And what are the signs that um, we are walking by faith and not by sight? And what are the signs that the burden that the Lord gives us to carry really is light and the yoke is easy? Because, you know, it, and I think that in the world in general, people like being busy and being tired is a badge of honor. And I think it is. I mean, I cannot tell you when people talk to me all the time, the first thing they'll say to me is, oh, I don't want to bother you. You're so busy. Or I know you're so busy. And I, and because I think people think that if you are a pastor and you're not really busy, then you're not doing it right. And so I, I'm trying to say to people like, no, I'm, I'm doing the work that the Lord has called me to do. And when I'm doing it well, I'm not super busy. I've got plenty of time to rest and plenty of time to think and pray and study. And certainly I have plenty of time to talk to whoever in the congregation needs to have a spiritual conversation because that's what I'm here to do. It's not to do all the ministry or organize all. The, I mean, I'm happy to put my hand to the plow to do whatever, and I'm going to be running. Because there's a time for that. Right, and I'm going to be running some errands for stuff going on next week. To, I mean, later this afternoon. So it's not that I'm not willing to do practical stuff, but you just have to remember that the practical stuff exists so that we can orient ourselves to what God is doing in the world. I just started reading a book on Christian mindfulness, and the very first chapter says that part of our problem uh, in ministry or not in ministry is that we're either thinking too much about the past or anticipating too much the future and just not being right there in the present moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'm sorry, because I kind of ducked out and didn't do an astonishment today, because the hummingbird mugging you in the throat was not a sign of what God is. That was not of the Lord. Um, But anyway. So So what are you thinking about? Well, so we were talking beforehand that we are going to devote this whole time today to talking about something that's in the news a lot lately and around, which is 
critical race theory, which a lot of people are talking about now, and I think that my experience and my opinion is that people who are speaking about critical race theory with the most energy and passion are people who do not know what it is, um, who are um, talking about what they've been told is happening, um, particularly where it comes when it comes to public schools, but are not um, are not using that term correctly. So we wanted to talk about critical race theory and what it is and why we do not think that any follower of Jesus Christ needs to be even the tiniest bit disturbed about critical race theory. So, um, and this all happened because last week after we recorded this podcast, um, I went with a friend to um, a school board meeting, which was the first in-person meeting they'd had since COVID was over. And um, there were lots of people who had organized to come out to speak to the school board against critical race theory. And their story, which they sincerely and authentically believed, um, their story was that um, our public school system, which is called CMS, has instituted a curriculum of critical race theory that they are now indoctrinating children kindergarten through 12th grade and they are teaching white children to hate themselves teaching white children that to be white is to inherently be an oppressor and that that critical race theory teaches um, children of color particularly black kids that they are victims so it is instituting a victim mentality in people of color. It is teaching white children that they need to hate themselves and feel um, nothing but guilt and anguish about their very existence, and that it is teaching children to see one another through the lens of race and to hate one another and to hate America. And if that sounds like hyperbole, if it sounds like I'm exaggerating the position for effect... And you're not. I mean, I just could say, like, I'd like to say that I wish that I were, but I sat in that um, public comment section there were 84 people who had signed up to speak and everybody got there for two minutes and i i promise you i mean they're they're the mostly women who had come they were organized they were wearing t-shirts that they were moms for liberty um they were all white women and and this is what they stood up and said that you know it's not appropriate for you to teach my white son to hate himself it's not appropriate for you to teach children to see each other um, primarily for race, there was a lot of quoting of, um, my, let me just be clear, misquoting of Martin Luther King and saying this is everything that King fought against, that he wants children to be um, seen by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. So this is this is the, the story. And, I, and I've got to say, if I believed that that were happening in the public schools, then I, too, would oppose that. Um, but it's not. So what is happening in the public schools right now is that people are asking very um, good questions about how do we teach American history and whose experience of American history do we center in the ways that we tell the story. And really... Up until this moment, um, American history has been told from the perspective of white people for the benefit of white people. So American history has been presented in such a way 
that the experiences of white people are centered, and it has been told in a way that will make white people appear as the heroes of every story, and that will make white people feel comfortable with American history. And so when something like the institution of chattel slavery is mentioned, it's mentioned very briefly, it is, um, you know, Students are told that in the context of the time, it was morally ambivalent. Oftentimes, literally, when they're describing, say, the triangle trade, they will, instead of saying that enslaved Africans were brought over, they will say workers were brought over. So it is the story is um, just whitewashed to make white people look heroic and to downplay the suffering of indigenous people or people of color. And so, um, and and the reason that this is done is, I mean, A, because people want to teach history as a, as a victory story, and people, um, and you know, the public school system is created in this country to help make citizens of the United States. I mean, that's why we have a public school system. So for a long time, the thinking was, people are only going to be good citizens if they believe that their country is good and noble. So we need to tell the history in a way so that people can be proud of the country, and then they will feel called to serve um, in whatever ways their country calls them to serve. Um, So what is happening now, and it's long overdue, is that people are starting to ask the question of who who are we telling the story to and who are we trying to keep comfortable? And obviously as a white child to hear that slavery, yeah, it happened, but it was happening everywhere and it wasn't that bad and the slaves were happy and everything was fine after King comes, that makes white children feel very comfortable, but it makes black children and indigenous children and people of color feel very uncomfortable because... And more importantly, it's not the truth. Well, it's a lie. And it's a li- so, but I think it's just important to say, like, people will say all the time, and I believe me, I heard it, you got to teach history in a way that doesn't traumatize children. And I would just say that this whitewashed version of history can make white students feel comfortable, but it makes black and brown and indigenous and other children of color, it does not make them feel comfortable. It gives them huge um, anguish about the fact that they know it's not true and that the suffering of their ancestors is being treated as as if it didn't matter. Um, so I, I think, you know, that that thing of like, we don't want kids to feel uncomfortable in the classrooms. When people say that, we don't want kids to feel uncomfortable in the classrooms. What they really mean is we don't want white kids to feel uncomfortable in the classrooms because black and brown kids have felt uncomfortable in these classrooms for generations. Yeah. And it not only makes them feel uncomfortable, but it gives them a false sense of, of, identity and who they are. I was watching a game show just last night, and this particular um, contestant, a white person, had a chance to win a trip to Europe. And the person said, I would love to go to Europe because that is where all civilization Uh. is from, right? Yeah. I was like, so when you teach American history in a certain way, especially when you begin black history with slavery, well then for those students, their identity can be shaped in such a way that they begin to think, oh, we started from slavery and they have 
little to no sense of a history before then. Well, and I also think when we teach black history and it is just the story of like, well, Martin Luther King was exceptional and he and he fixed this and the um, uh, the name is escaping me right now because I'm tired. A baseball player who broke the color line. Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was so exceptional that, you know, when we teach it as as the whole black history story is a story of exceptional African-Americans, what that tells people is basically exceptional African-Americans were fine and anybody who wasn't fine didn't really matter because they weren't exceptional, right? And so if you're a child and that's the message, then if you don't feel exceptional, then you either work yourself to death or you give up. Well, and I think what it what it teaches everyone is that the suffering of people only matters if the people in power decide that that person deserves not to suffer, right? It sort of reinforces this narrative that, well, it was unfortunate that black people were enslaved in this country, but most of them weren't capable of anything better. And we're going to teach you about the 10 people who really mattered in mm-hmm. February, but at nobody else's story really matters, right? And that's only possible to, to give people that idea if you don't tell people the real truth about the brutality of these institutions of chattel slavery and the, you know, extermination of indigenous Americans, right? Like when you help people learn the extent of of the systematic horrifying way that um, that that um, I'm, I'm gosh, my brain is is not working today that but that whole peoples were that genocide happened when Absolutely. you help people understand the systematic and horrifying way that genocide was perpetrated purposely by the american government then all of a sudden you don't think like oh there were only 15 exceptional people then all of a sudden you realized oh to survive in this way is an extraordinary accomplishment and you can grieve the loss of human promise and potential in these institutions. And you can really wrestle with the reality that people with power can do terrible things with that power, which is something that, you know, and this is what I said when I was speaking, which is, you know, as a white person who went to a very diverse school, thanks to busing, um, but learned that very whitewashed version of American history, um, I, I, did not have the capacity. I learned it was deemed appropriate by the state school board of Kentucky for me to learn about concentration camps in fourth grade. So I could learn about genocide that the German people perpetrated against the Jewish people when I was in fourth grade. I was old enough to know that. But I wasn't old enough to learn about the same kinds of systemic horror that my own government perpetrated against minority communities in my own country. And and that's really problematic to sort of teach a whole group of people that, well, there's something about German DNA that makes this possible. But the reality is humans are capable of great, great evil. And every human needs to know that. And it isn't whiteness. I mean, it isn't like lack of melanin that made these systems happen. It is the fact that there were people with power who who chose to use their power in a certain way to build wealth and um, privilege. And I, you know, I just think we all need to wrestle with yeah, that. And for me, the disturbing thing, the, the one of the hardest knots to work on, to try to untie, is the truth that these people were Christian, that 
mm-hmm. these people named the name of Jesus and attended churches. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that's what I think we need to understand is that literally people did not believe that someone without white skin was fully human. Correct. Like, and so that's how it was justified. And we have to be able to see how seductive the enemy of our souls is that it was perfectly plausible for highly intelligent people to just look away from the sin in their own lives. And, you know, just all well, of... because they had some understanding of the gospel. They had some understanding of what the scripture says about the love of neighbor. And so if you're going to be a part of the institution of slavery, then you, you have to find some workarounds just, yeah. and around I, the clear words of Jesus. And I think that, you know, as a pastor, I, I mean, I just, two things. So A, I mean, I suppose this was the whole point to say critical race theory is actually a discipline of higher education and legal studies that is asking people who are training to be lawyers. And not in public schools. Right. But this is a graduate level study um, called critical race theory where legal scholars are studying what are the effects um, of the fact that we had these institutions of chattel slavery and the doctrine of manifest destiny, that these were the thinking of the day at the same time that we were setting up institutions, national institutions like the judicial system, like the military, like public education. So legal scholars are trying to say, hey, can we go back and look at some of the precedents that we use every day to make legal decisions in our country? And can we go and look about how these precedents, which we accept as absolutes, might in fact have been shaped by the thinking and the cultural assumptions of the day, right? But I just want to be clear that critical race theory, that term has a very specific meaning. And so it is not just any discussion about race in America cannot be labeled critical race theory. Critical race theory is something that is only taught in graduate law programs. So to accuse any school system, any K through 12th grade school system of teaching critical race theory is just factually um, in error. What people are reacting to is the idea that people are looking at the history curriculum and saying, we need to teach this truthfully. And in a way, and the truth of American history is it's deeply painful and deeply uncomfortable, and there are things to grieve as well as things to celebrate. And it was really interesting to see so many people stand up to to tell CMS to stop teaching critical race theory, but to say in the same breath, but we want, of course we want you to teach history truthfully. And I'm like, but this is the thing. You, you, what you are reacting to is the thing you say you support, which is let's teach history truthfully. And we look, we can't protect our students, black or white, from the legacy of history that we all inherit. And so, you know, and this is my thing as, as a parent, that my kids are going to have really painful experiences in their lives. And my goal is not necessarily to protect them from those experiences. My goal is to parent them in those experiences, right? So like I can kind of 
play the parent card and try to say like, oh, you failed a test and it was unfair and let me go to the school and pitch a fit and try to get this fixed for you so that you're not in pain. Or I can sit with you in pain and try to help you understand this in context and think about what you want to do differently or how can you advocate for yourself or help you understand that this really isn't the end of the world. So for me as a parent, I don't want to kind of hyper-engineer my kids' experience so that they never feel pain. What I want is to be with them in their suffering to help them find resources for healing and strength and wholeness, even in those hard times. And I think what I see parents, well-meaning parents doing is, I don't want my kids to have to wrestle with these really painful truths about American history and whiteness. I want to protect them from that. And what I'm saying is we want, I want my kids to encounter these truths when they're young, when they're coming home from school with assignments so that I can talk to them about that. I want them to be in school with a teacher who has been trained on how to facilitate discussions between kids of different ethnicities. I I want this to happen when they're young because whether they're ready for it or not, when they grow up, they're going to be carrying the legacy of what it means to be an American. So I don't want to send them out the door with just no training for that. And I certainly don't want to send them out the door with a comfortable lie that says anything that makes you uncomfortable isn't true. And that was the other thing that I was observing when I was just watching people give comments that that people's you know, people's argument was, this makes me feel really bad, so stop. And again, as, I mean, whatever, as a person, but as a Christian, your your barometer for truth can't be, well, if it makes me feel good, it's true. And if it makes me feel bad, it's a lie. That cannot be your barometer for discerning what is true and what is false. And I think, you know, one of the most helpful things about my Christian identity and being part of this larger Christian story is like, it's not new news for me that I'm a sinner. That's not new news. It is not new news to me that I am, you know, part of a fallen creation that is deserving of God's wrath. That is not new news to me. So when I discover incidents in my own life or, you know, pieces of the true story of the history of my nation, that a nation that I love and and that I can see, you know, I can see the hand of God on America, which makes which I can see the hand of God, let me be clear, on every nation that God... Well, one of the reasons we love the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible is because as it tells the story of Israel... It's the whole truth. It tells about some shameful moments in the life of Israel, but it seeks to tell the whole story and yet also say, we're not throwing it in the trash. Right. Israel's not a trash nation, beloved and called by God. And we're going to tell the whole truth. Right. Like that's, you know, a a part of scripture that I hated in seminary was the prophet Hosea. You know, I just did not understand what this whole story of Gomer and Hosea was doing in scripture. And now, you know, and I, in seminary, you know, I made my peace by saying like, I'm going to wrestle with this my whole life. But now what I really love is not the ways that it's been misused by misogynistic people, but the fact that... Israel is so clearly telling the story of its own wretchedness and its own sinfulness, and yet the same, you know, prophetic book bears witness to 
not only God's steadfast faithfulness to Israel, but Israel's inherent worth, right? So Israel didn't have to say, in order to be the chosen nation, in order to be worthy, anything bad I did didn't matter or wasn't bad, right? Like we who take the Bible seriously should be able to know that to tell the truth about our history does not mean confessing that we're worthless garbage, right? It just means bearing witness to the truth that we are humans. And so humans are... I mean, like, I think sometimes we use words like broken or flawed, Mm -hmm. and I like those words because I, you know, some people just walk into church with so much baggage that it's really important, but also there's a time when you have to put those kind of pretty words aside and just say, like, no, sinful, like, Mm -hmm. evil, like, people, you need to understand that our sin is not cute. It's not cute. And I think that one of the reasons that made me wrestle so much with a book like Hosea is because I did have this whitewashed version of uh, American history that made me think like, well, I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but by and large, we're all pretty great, you know, because I had learned that I was, that my ancestors were heroes, that, that America was basically saving the world and everything good that had happened in the world had been conceived of here. I didn't learn the truth, which made it really hard for me to understand like, you know, why does the world need so much saving? Like maybe America should just be in charge of everything and then we'll be fine, right? Like I'm just saying, as a white student growing up, I just, I was not taught to look at the world from any perspective other than a white person's perspective. And so, I mean, beyond everything else, I am so glad that my daughters are learning the truth about this nation. I don't want my kids to hate America. I don't, they don't hate America, but we do need to wrestle with what does it mean to be white and to be a follower of Jesus. And if my kids, and they do come home and say, I feel really terrible about what happened, said like me too. And, and now that we know that this um, vulnerability to sinfulness is in everyone, how are we going to walk out our life with fear and trembling and make sure that we don't get seduced to do great evil just because it's profitable? Like, I, I think that really matters. But fundamentally, as Christians, we're not afraid of the truth, period, end of story. And if we say, well, we don't want people to learn the truth because it would make them feel bad, then you're going to have to stop preaching the gospel because the first move of the gospel is friend, you're not a good person. You need to be rescued. You need to be saved. You are deserving of God's wrath. And that is hard to understand if the story of the world that you're taught is like, well, there might be some bad people over there, but basically me and my people are, are good. And all we've done our whole generationally for our ancestors, all we've ever done is you know, fight for liberty and justice for all. If that's what you learn, it's hard to believe someone when they say that you need to be saved um, by the cross of Jesus Christ. So, you know, I I just, but it, it was just really interesting for me to watch that all work out. And one more thing, and I, I know you're going to share something too, but the other thing that was really interesting was there was this really heavy and very sacred moment where some young women who were... Um, survivors of sexual assault at a local high school and they also came that night to testify about what had happened to them and to bear witness against the systems of power and authority in their school community that basically told them as victims that they were responsible for their own attacks and would not 
um, hold the perpetrators responsible or even investigate them because the risk of, um, you know, because the perpetrator, the potential future of the perpetrators needed to be protected at all costs. So maybe they hadn't done anything wrong. And so we're not going to investigate because we're not going to risk accusing an innocent boy of doing something wrong. But even if a boy did do something wrong, it was the fault of the victim. And these boys are all full of great promise and potential. and We don't want to derail their promising futures by um, investigating this claim that you young women have. So so there were probably 10 young women who very courageously spoke not only of their own experiences, but were saying to the school board, hey, some of the ways, some of the systems that you have set up in your schools um, have allowed these kinds of incidents to flourish because when they happen, there's no accountability. Um, and it was really interesting that those same mothers who came to speak out against critical race theory were so supportive of these young women. And I'm glad, let me be clear. They, but it was so interesting that when young women were calling out misogyny and were calling out patriarchy and the ways that the futures of boys are prioritized over the presence the present of girls, those women were saying, yeah, that can't stand and that's unacceptable. But when other people were standing and saying, hey, we can't center white children at the expense of truth and at the expense of children of color, those women were really against that. And so it's so interesting. And again, I'm not, I, I, I would say like, the only reason that I'm any different from those women is because of the grace of Jesus Christ, right? Like the only reason I know anything that I know is because God was so gracious to me and took me by the hand and led me down a different path and that people were so gracious to be patient to me when with me when my eyes were being opened and yeah, I had Yeah, because you were going to beat up your school teacher. Right, right, <laughs> who told me about... Um, uh, internment camps during World War II. So like uh, the only reason I know anything is because God was gracious and revealed truth to me. So I don't, I'm not better than the women who were on the other side. I know that. I don't, I don't look down at them. I, I think they're wrong. I know they're wrong, but I, I don't feel any pride about that. Um, but what I do want to point out by just lifting up the way that they were so supportive of the young women, but so dismissive of the concerns of people of color who were standing up. It's just to say how we think, we can so clearly see injustice when it's a threat to us, but when injustice profits us, the enemy of our souls is so powerful and seductive and shrewd at convincing us that what profits us is really not bad and, and the pain of other people really doesn't matter um, if, it, if it's good for us, it's probably good for God. And so I just to be able to see that work out that night, it was really humbling for me to realize, okay, well, then I am susceptible to the same kind of blindness. And we just all need to be aware of the way that when things are working out in our favor, it's just really tempting not to listen to divergent voices and not to question what's good for us. And um, it, it was just a really, it was a really powerful night. Well, I'm just so mindful that we, you know, live in this information age and there's so much coming at us. And when it comes to critical race theory, the um, conservative media sphere, it's just very clearly 
um, taking a position that is calling anti-racism racism. Mm -hmm. And this is not new. Right, it's like right. living in a Kafka novel. Yes, and and we 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 saw this during um, school integration, mm -hmm. right? This is the worst thing. How dare you force my child? This is wrong. This is morally wrong. Uh, people quoted scriptures, um, and yet there was some progress. So part of me um, in this season. She's very aware that what we need to be doing is, um, you know, in part what you and I are doing now, we need to be speaking about it. There, um, if we are in an information age, we're putting information out there to say, okay, this is not what you think. Mm -hmm. It's not even being taught in public schools. We need to tell the truth about history. But also, it makes me suspect that God is up to something in terms of the next phase of justice and reconciliation in the mm -hmm. country because it seems that um, we have this cycle of tension mm -hmm. followed by some kind of breakthrough. Now, it remains to be seen if that tension is going to grow to the level of blood in the streets, um, even more than what we right. see now. Um, or if there will be some kind of movement that um, opens our eyes as a country. Um, but I, I, I'm just so aware in this season, this moment uh, in history, that information is critical. And um, as you've said several times already, the devil is tricky. And um, I was having a conversation just yesterday with um, a man about my age, maybe a little younger, a blue-collar worker uh, who lives not far from where I live, and um, he's struggling financially. And his place of passion right now is that evil seems to be winning. But the evil he names is not the evil I would name yeah. the evil he names. You know things like we've we've got all these transgendered people, right? That um, all, all of these feminists, you know, the, the you know our society is changing, and um, we talked about those things and how I I didn't see them as evil, but what I emphasized was that even if he was right. Don't think he is, but even if he's right, what's most important, and, and, and we, we talked about being followers of Jesus. That, that was mm -hmm. the, the, the real start of the conversation. But what matters as a follower of Jesus is how we respond to what we perceive to be evil. And um, my concern for him, that is uh, for white Americans, is that they're being told to respond to evil with evil, right. to respond with violence, 
by any means necessary. Right. You, you, liberty and, at all costs. And let's just name that. That is the myth of redemptive yeah. violence, yeah. right? Yeah. And and the myth of redemptive violence is at the heart of the Christian faith. So let me define some terms. The myth of redemptive violence is that violence is bad, except when violence redeems and saves, right? So it's this idea that there's evil in the world and that the righteous response for those who are called and anointed by God, the righteous response for those called and anointed people is to use violence to destroy evil and thus achieve salvation for everyone, right? That is the myth of redemptive violence. So violence is normally bad, do not thou shalt not kill except, except for when violence is good and it redeems all right and so this myth of redemptive violence it is a foundational myth in humanity right so trace it all the way back to cain but you know through all kinds of governments that people will say Violence is wrong, except for when the government does it. And when the government or the empire does it, then violence is good because the violence is used to destroy the evil. So, you know, we're going to kill the killers and that mm -hmm. killing a killer is legal. So killing someone is illegal, but killing a killer is legal because that's how you get rid of the killers. Right. So the myth of redemptive violence is a foundational civilization myth that I think crosses cultures. Right. And the Gospels. Uh, the, the main testimony of the gospel is to expose the myth of redemptive violence as a lie. And so Jesus is killed legally, and the rationale of the religious and secular authorities who killed Jesus was to say that this man is dangerous, that his words are causing tension and chaos, and so for the greater good, we are going to kill him. So we are going to do violence against this individual so that we can re redeem and save the community. And for God to come down... Oh, you were going to say something. No, no. I, I was just going to piggyback on what you're saying. Um, I was listening to, I believe it's the Bible uh, the Bible Project podcast, and they were talking about the creation story uh, in Genesis, but also comparing it to other mythologies, basic and, and mostly um, Babylonian about Marduk and Tiamat, and um, and uh, it's it's interesting uh, because in their creation story, um, uh, their 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 gods create order out of chaos through violence. Mm -hmm. One kills the other, takes the body, splits it open, and, and, and creates. Mm -hmm. And the Christian story mm -hmm. is that when creation turns evil, the God who has all power, who could violently mm -hmm. end it all, Does says... Not. I will become one of them mm -hmm. and absorb I will their... absorb evil, yes. right? So the cross is God's answer to the myth of redemptive violence. Mm -hmm. So rotate the cross 45 degrees and see mm -hmm. it as a big X that God is saying every time you hear someone preach the myth of redemptive violence. And once you mm -hmm. know it, you'll start hearing it everywhere. Mm -hmm. You will start hearing it 
everywhere, and certainly from religious leaders, and certainly from Christian leaders, that people will constantly talk about. Some people are just so evil, they need to be killed. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. We're gonna- That was January 6th, right? Right. We just gotta take the country back. We need to do evil or threaten evil. So, but the, the, the witness of the gospel and the message of the cross is that the way of Jesus is not to destroy evildoers, but to absorb Mm -hmm. evil and return good for evil. And what God is doing in the cross is taking an instrument that was used to enforce redemptive violence, and God is taking it and transforming that very instrument to be an instrument of forgiveness and mercy and grace and new life. So you cannot be a real follower of Jesus and believe in redemptive violence. Redemptive violence is what killed Jesus. And redemptive violence is what Jesus came to expose as evil, to say redemptive violence is so flawed that it will execute the Savior of the world, that we as humans are not capable of judging other humans. We are not capable of wielding the power of life. Well, and that's why, you know, the Apostle Paul says things like, um, on the cross, Jesus triumphed over the powers of of, of evil and made a public spectacle of them. Mm-hmm. Like w- when Rome would conquer an enemy, put their leader in a cage and parade them through the streets of Rome. Paul is saying that Jesus did that on the cross. Right. And we can see now why um, King's nonviolent protests were so powerful, why the Greensboro sit-ins were so powerful, because by absorbing the violence, it made, it exposed right. the evil. It exposed the evil. Right. And, and this is why right now you'll have a lot of people talking about violence is okay. We all need to have our Second Amendment rights. We all need to have a gun so that we can do violence if we need to. But words that expose the truth those are unacceptable, and those must be stopped at all costs. So I was talking with this uh, man, and I began to just emphasize that very point, Um, because my concern for him, because he seemed to be going down a road of, I've got to do something. I've got to do something dramatic and big, right? I've got to be a soldier of light, right? And um, so we just begin to talk about these things. But, <laughs> and this is the way God works. I should not be surprised. I walked away from that conversation with my own um, determination to walk in nonviolence renewed, right? This, this idea of, oh, sometimes I pay too much attention attention to the the lies of the enemy. Sometimes I get too worked up about what um, Fox News is saying, um, and I need to stay focused on the mission of building multi-ethnic community in my congregation and and my personal life. And and not expect the world to celebrate that, because the world, when Jesus was in the world, Walking out God's agenda, and I'm not saying that you and I, I'm not, I'm not calling us Jesus. I'm not. But I'm just saying, like, the values of the kingdom that we're trying to embody are not the values of the culture that God is overturning. And so to say, yeah, we don't want to be heroic crusaders that are exterminating worthless people. 
what we are called to do is to be like Jesus, to walk around, to speak truth and love, but to build community, to serve, to heal, to welcome, to um, live with people. Yeah, you said something last week in the podcast that really stuck with me. And literally, I thought about it almost every day since we last recorded it, uh, last recorded and um, uh, referenced it in my sermon on Sunday. And you just very clearly and matter-of-factly said, the kingdom is breaking through, mm-hmm. right? And that, it's a, it's a simple statement, but a powerful statement, because if we believe that the kingdom is breaking through, well, then number one, I got a lot to celebrate. Mm-hmm. Number two, I'm energized mm-hmm. to work for a kingdom reality of justice and true shalom. Mm-hmm. And I can hold, I can resist, that's a better word, um, my own tendency toward uh, redemptive violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I think the reality is we just have to understand that the weapons of the kingdom are different than the weapons of the culture. And so... I mean, when we look and see great pain and suffering and evil in the world, I I do want to stand against that. I do want to fight that. But I don't fight my enemies in the way that the world fights its enemies because that just increases their power. You're not trying to destroy them. No, I'm trying to be a vessel of God so that other people can be rescued in the way that I am rescued and that I understand that there is nobody on this earth who was not made by the Lord I love. There's nobody on this earth who is not made and created to be my sister or my brother. And I understand that I'm not different. I'm not better. I have received a great, great gift. And, you know, I do think that there are ideas that are right and there are ideas that are wrong. But I do not think that there are people who are wrong and people who are right, right? And that is what, and I and I really wanted to talk about this this week because we've been doing this podcast for a minute. And so not that I think that anybody would care, but like there are receipts that one of the things people were really talking about that night is recently the school board here had Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote lots of Stamp from the Beginning, which I've read and really loved, and also How to Be an Anti-Racist, which was also really amazing. And they hired him to come and do a training with teachers. And people were very angry that the school board paid, I think, $25,000 to him, which is his fee, to come in and do this um, training with with teachers. Now, I got to say, if anybody wanted to come back and listen to the past two years, plus years of this podcast, when I first learned about Kendi's construct of moving beyond racist, not racist, but he has a three-tiered, which is racist, not racist, anti-racist. And he was saying, like, what we need is not people who are not racist. What we need is people who are anti-racist. And without hearing directly from him, when I just was approached with that idea, my first instinct was, like, despair. Like, oh, gosh, the line finish line has been moved and now i don't i you know i'm i can't even aspire to reach it and like why isn't it enough for me to be against racism why do i have to be you know i just, i didn't understand i didn't hadn't read it yet wasn't eager, eager to read it because it was like acquainting me with a new idea that 
seemed threatening to the way that I saw the world that felt comfortable to me. And I know that you could go back and listen to us talk about like, oh, what do we, what do we think about this anti-racist thing? And isn't this problematic? And blah, blah, blah. Since then, I've read his book. I, I think if you haven't read his book, if you've just heard people talking about him, particularly, you can read Stamped, uh, which is looking at um, the ways that racist ideas are um, have been made, deliberately constructed in Western culture to justify economic systems that exploited black people, right? So all of the history that I was not taught in schools, I got, a, and I thought I knew it a lot by the time I was in my 40s, I read Stamped and realized, oh gosh, I, I, like it's so much more deeper and more profound than I ever had any idea of. So I'm grateful for that. It was very uncomfortable, but I'm grateful to know that. But counter to what I expected, reading how to be an anti-racist and reading the way that he understands the battle against racism, A, it's actually incredibly generous. It is incredibly generous, especially towards um, people, white people, right, who sometimes, because uh, Kendi's premise is, look, we all grew up in this world where racist ideas have become, you know, just foundationally embedded in the culture. So whether you're white or black or an indigenous person, we all carry these racist ideas in us. And he begins the book by talking about his own, his, his own, the, the ways that he had embodied and propagated racist ideas. And so he's saying like, if I, if I am, if you as a white person are um, influenced by racist ideas, well, welcome to humanity, right? That doesn't make you a bad person. That makes you a human person living in this fallen world. And then he just talks about, hey, we are all going to work to oppose racist ideas whenever we um, encounter them, even when we encounter them in ourselves. And we don't need to be full of shame or guilt. It's just like, it's like you would not be upset if you stepped off the edge of the table and fell down. You wouldn't be like, I'm right. such an idiot. Yeah. Why didn't I levitate? Yeah. Why didn't I fly? You would just be like, oh, that's how gravity works. And when you look at the history of quote, Western civilization, and when you look at the kinds of ideas that were deliberately propagated to um, give people moral justification for immoral acts, then the fact that these are embedded in our unconscious is just not surprising. And we can all just accept that this is the repair work that we need to do probably for the next several generations. And we don't need to like accuse each other or throw each other away like garbage, we can just sort of say, hey, this is the work that we're all doing, that we're all overcoming together. So I think, anyway, I just wanted to say I was, um, you know, very much like those women who showed up at the school board meeting. Like I heard about an idea and I didn't, I didn't um, acquaint myself with the actual idea, just sort of heard about it. Uh, my initial response was it made me uncomfortable, and I thought, like, surely this is unnecessary, right? And I just think it's important to realize, like, we're going to be growing and learning and discovering new ways to um, know the truth and um, work to reconcile and heal and overcome the truth, and those are going to be uncomfortable, and we need to be able to be curious about people who have ideas or who are bearing witness to truths, especially if they make us uncomfortable. And honestly, as people of faith, we need to be suspicious of stories 
that make us comfortable, right? Like we need to be suspicious of stories that tell us, you know what, you're wonderful just the way you are. Don't change, right? Because if you read the Bible, it certainly doesn't do that. Right, and because Paul is, I mean, and, and Jesus and the witness of the New Testament isn't like, I love you, you're perfect, don't change. The message of the gospel is, hey, you're a, a slave to sin. Here's the antidote. You're going to need to um, continually immerse yourself um, in this antidote for the rest of your life. You need to adopt the model, the metaphor, not of good people, bad people, but the metaphor of people in recovery. We are like addicts. Yes. We are addicted to sin. We need to get up every day and recognize that I am vulnerable to these powerful forces, and I got to work the program, the program being life in Jesus every day, and trust that I can't save myself from this, but my higher power, God, loves me and will work within me to do what I cannot do in and of myself. But I just... Yeah, well, and the, the lie that is seeking to work against this idea of inviting white people to be anti-racist, the lie is that black people are just waiting for enough power and enough opportunity to do what's been done to us. Mm -hmm. That's the lie. Like, let's, let's keep white people afraid of that. Well, and I think it's white people who, I mean, I think a lot of white people really believe that. Like it's well, but the truth is, whether it's a family, a church, or a neighborhood, white, I mean, black people, we are quick to adopt folks. Mm -hmm. We are quick That's to make true. you one of us because for many of us the 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 threshold is not very high. The bar's not very yeah. high. It's are you safe? Mm -hmm. If you are safe, cool. Now we know you're going to say some you're going to say some right. dumb stuff because you're you're white. You've been shaped by the society. But you know, if you are, we'll say, uh, she's cool, he's cool, right? We are quick to adopt people. Well, and especially, I mean, I think what we have a gift as the body of Christ is that we really do have common ground. Absolutely. That is transcendent. And so, you know, the, the culture of Christianity, the mores, the traditions, like that is not going to sustain a multi-ethnic community. But the the real transcendent eternal common ground that we have in Jesus, which says all this stuff yeah. is true. It's all true. It yeah. was as bad as you've ever been taught and a million times worse. It's true. And yet the cross of Jesus Christ, the love, the grace, the forgiveness, and the reconciliation that is exhibited on the cross of Jesus Christ, it is enough to overcome even that truth. So we don't need mm -hmm. to believe in a lie. We don't need well, to believe in a let's, lie. Let's call out, um, our politics because there are Christian believers, brothers and sisters in Christ who are Republicans and their uh, political leaders say to them, well, you know, the Democrats are for black people. And if you, if you give critical race theory a chance, if you teach American history, history truthfully, if you um, if you act in a just way toward black people, 
then their side wins. Mm -hmm. And I don't think enough is being said about um, power and economics behind what's driving racism. Well, and I think that's where, again, Kendi's book is like 900 pages yeah. long. But it's really helpful because what he exposes is, hey, friends, this is all about, it's all about the money. It's all about the economy, stupid. Like the reason that people wrote these books and wrote these documents and told these stories was because they needed a way to get people to not believe the plain truth of their minds and eyes and hearts. And so they, they taught these very complicated theologies and justifications and moral philosophy systems so that people would be have something to believe in other than the truth that was in front of their eyes, which is to take a woman's child out of her arms and sell that child away or take that child away is a crime against God and humanity. So you had to come up with some pretty sophisticated stuff mm -hmm. to get people just not to believe the plain truth that was in front of them. So it, it's, it's all economic, which is depressing until it's empowering when you realize like, oh, well, now that I know that, I don't have to say that everyone involved was garbage. I can just say, hey, I have a different value system and I'm going to return to the truth of the gospel, which says this world is not my home. And I'm not trying to get on the top of the dog pile of this home. And the treasure that I have from Jesus is not something that can be kept in a bank. And I understand that when Jesus talks about what is most tempting to people, it's money. And this bears out in a real and sober assessment of human history. So anyway, I, this has been super long and I feel like we probably need to need to cut it. So I don't even know what I'm preaching about this Sunday, so I can't answer that question. Something from Colossians and I, I'm it's Thursday. It's and Thursday. I, and I'm, I'm I'm it's not cute. But I'm it's all right because some weeks are like that. God is good. What are you preaching about really quickly? Uh listen, um Mark chapter eight, the feeding of the four thousand. I love that story because, you know, they have very little to feed all these people. But when they um, when they obey Jesus and pass out the food, and then they take up the fragments, they have more at the end than when they start. And I just feel like as a church, we need to start believing it. That is the economy yes. of God. We're spending so much time worrying about how do we save and be good stewards of what we can, and we don't have enough to be generous, and we don't have enough to serve, and we need to cut back, and we need to start realizing, like, God did not ask us to save God's money. Yes. Right? Well, one of the things I'm saying uh, on Sunday is, okay, we've got to understand how God operates. One way is that God will ask you to do things that you cannot do in your own strength. Right. And your choice is to either say, okay, I'm going to do it by myself, even though I don't know how I'm going to be able to do it, or um, I'm just not going to try because I know I don't have enough resources. Or the faithful response is, I'm just going to trust God. I, I, I have a sense that God is calling me to step in a certain direction. I don't see how all the resources are going to be made available, but I'm going to trust God. And to recognize that, look, either God is going to show up in a spectacular way and glorify God's self by making much out of nothing, or your failure and your foolishness will also bear witness to the values of the kingdom of God. Either way, God wins, and that's what we're supposed to be about here. So, I'm That's what we're preaching. Well, if you want to hear that sermon or find out anything else about the what God is doing in the ministry at God's Church, Dorida Presbyterian, then you should go to their website, www.doridapres.org, or you can listen to Yolando's back 
catalog at the Derida Press podcast on the Podbean website. Or you can check out their YouTube channel where they are now live streaming worship um, on your Facebook page, right? So yes. lots of ways to check out Derida Press and what God is doing there. And if you want to find out more about what's happening at the Grove, where we seek to be led by the Holy Spirit, <laughs> and sometimes um, that feels like fumbling around, um, you can go to our website, thegrovecharlotte.org. Um, you can look at the um, sermons on our um, on our podcast, which is the Grove Church Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And um, you can worship with us in person at 10 o'clock. You can worship with Yondo in person. At 10 o'clock. At 10 o'clock. Um, or you can worship on our live stream on our Facebook page as well. And I think we're putting up sermons on the YouTube channel also. So score. Uh, but thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.